I feel like with kids, we're going to need to have the data conversation before the birds and the bees. Um, well, there's a couple of things we need to talk about today, kids. And the first one is like your your behaviour that's going to stop you getting a job one day, or information is going to be owned by somebody in some tower somewhere. Welcome back to the Genuine X podcast. This week, Martin and I speak to Pete Trainer. Pete has had a varied career. He is an author, applied artificial intelligence designer technologist and co-founder of Us AI, as well as being a mental health campaigner. Through using a combination of data and AI, has been able to spot patterns in behaviour, which can lead to intervention and treatment. We discuss the ethics surrounding this subject and what moral issues this tool might have. Just to forewarn you, we are discussing a range of aspects surrounding mental health in this episode, including suicide. If you have any thoughts surrounding this subject or on this episode, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Podcast at jackmorton.co.uk Thanks again. Welcome back to the Genuine X Podcast. Uh, this week we've got Pete Trainer with us. Uh, Pete, welcome to the Genuine X Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> uh, Pete, could you just uh, tell the guys out there a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you do? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so for the last 20 years, I've been doing data-driven design. Uh, I've been running an AI business in London for the last five years. Um, I'm a an author. I wrote a book a few years ago, which was an interesting uh, philosophical journey into technology and its effects on humanity. And I'm uh, also the CEO of a health tech company now, um, looking at primary care for people with mental health conditions or um, people who just need kind of an Uber for primary care um so it's been a really mixed bag of 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 uh, roles over the last few years but they all pivot around data and ai is that where you thought you'd end up in no health tech no i wanted to be postman pat when i was at school uh, i thought that was a good job he's a happy man and i don't think i don't think any of us really truly know where we're going to end up we just got to go with the journey a little bit mm-hmm. it's a bit deep wasn't it yeah postman pat has a lot of technology in his life now i'm i, I don't understand who's um who's bankrolling his his um his, his whole logistics he's got like flying things and it's unbelievable oh, he had an aeroplane last time I yeah. watched it with my son yeah yeah no, that's not he's a very well funded postman which is weird given that the Royal Mail kind of yeah. slash their budgets right to the bone so <laughs> <laughs> um, so Pete the first time I actually I saw you talk was at um, Innovation Social it was through about three years ago and you were talking about the development of a chatbot based in AI which was helping people helping identify people or identifying patterns in behavior that might signal um, potential causes of harm to the self so I remember you brought up the example with men especially that you could tell them what was on at the cinema uh, between a certain time on yep. a Friday night, because actually that was a really core cool point yeah. when people would be slightly in danger. Yeah, I mean, one of the thing, one of the, one of the things that I've always been very open about is, you know, I'm not, I'm not a clinical practitioner. I'm a designer and AI and data tech nerd. So you got to try and uh, we've been trying to create technology. I think that resonates with people whilst not trying to codify counselling. Um, and that particular conversation we were having all those years ago was the algorithm that we'd been developing that, that spotted um, patterns that might look slightly erroneous or often normal um, set of routines and a set of behaviours and then start making recommendations of distractions. So we were looking at positive distraction as a way potentially of helping people when they're going into these slightly dark spaces. That was really what we discovered on that piece of work that was really interesting that guys especially were most at risk, certain types of of guys um, were most at risk at kind of 11.30 on a Friday night when they've come home from the pub, they're they're pretty boozed up and they've, you know, run out of people to speak to or things to do. And so then they start to get a little bit anxious. And what we were trying to do was create distractions or things, triggers that would, would deviate them off their potentially dark path at those moments at those flashpoints um using phone data it was a good experiment it, it worked really well there were some really positive results from that because mm. it always stuck with me that because i remember hearing that talk and thinking you know people talk a lot about technology for good but that seemed to me at, at the time a use of data in such a clever way that it really was 
it was there to help really genuinely it was a genuine helping point which yeah. i so i've never really forgotten that it's always kind of been at the back of my head so when i saw you earlier today i was like oh yeah it's that uh, that's nice today <laughs> yeah something stick because uh, yeah. I, I think as I'm a, I'm a designer doer i don't really if if i say i'm going to do something we do it and I, i'm not really a big fan of you know oh what if we could do this i'm a bit let's just do it but obviously in some of the themes that we're dealing with that also comes with some complications because just doing it can be ethically quite dubious sometimes as well so i do end up skirting some quite fine lines especially when you get into health and medical because i remember seeing um us two talking a while ago and when they pivoted into doing more um more kind of mental health and health you then step into the world of dealing with people like the nhs and stuff goes way way slower than yeah. you know, the kind of the startup world is used to um because there are all those checks and balances about the fact that you are dealing with some pretty serious themes yeah yeah so how do you implement well i mean that's exactly right the and it, it should be governed uh responsibly because it is dealing with people's health and well-being do you know what i mean it's got to be done respectfully and responsibly we've i've always looked at it as kind of life support rather than potentially mental health support because mental health is such a wide spectrum as well you end up dealing with people who have very simple mental health conditions that just need like loneliness can be a mental health condition or you know debt can be a trigger for a mental health condition you can deal with those things sort of very unclinically but then there are also people that have very complicated mental health conditions that fall within that spectrum and you just would not want to do things with those people without some kind of nhs care quality commission you know stamp of approval against that stuff and that takes a long time so we've always tried to try and find the spots um that that are um you know ethically okay to go into um whilst not straying too far towards the line of clinical because of those complications yeah so it's more is it fair to say it's more preventative predictive yeah. more kind of early nudges rather than if someone is yeah i mean you, you wouldn't want to be in the position where you are diagnosing people because that is we're just not there yet yeah and i'm not i've not seen i've not seen any technology over the last couple of years that's like a hundred percent brilliant at diagnosing anything um, and so even that becomes quite murky when you're sort of talking about mental health and things like that is it's like well you know how do you claim to be able to diagnose that I have exactly this condition from whatever the data is that you've gathered on me because I might not have given you all my data or I might have bits missing or actually you're judging me on my social media behavior and I'm a complete lunatic on social media but I'm actually quite you know introvert offline like so it's um yeah. it's a difficult data-driven analysis of people's behavior is real but there is like health is moving into using AI um, as a diagnostic tool because I, I, I have seen studies where it has been more accurate than GPs in diagnosing certain things. I mean, there is, I know there's like computer vision is being used to track like moles, for example, and that sort of thing. I guess that's kind of easier than behavioral. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, um, I was at a health tech conference this week actually called Giant in London and it was astonishing some of the advancements and some of the stuff that I saw and the, the predictive nature of some of the, the med tech stuff is, is truly incredible. But they are rapid analysis of very predictable linear problems. Um, and actually what AI and machine learning has been really good for in the medical space is making diagnosis more efficient, uh, probably less good at identifying whole new areas that perhaps doctors aren't spotting do you know what i mean so taking you know 10,000 um mammary scans and analyzing them in ultra rapid real time for breast cancer is now the perfect role for a machine versus a clinician sitting in the back room of a hospital looking at you know 10,000 x-rays and scans like it just makes perfect sense to allow a machine to do that kind of stuff um i think the minute you get to behavior and therapy and humanity that doesn't feel like a good role for technology because there's no empathy in it there's no bedside manner so yes of course um, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's interesting kind of lines being drawn up mm. but the work you're doing is more in the sort of sentiment analysis which is where you can kind of start to look at people's yeah. chat logs essentially we've always uh, we've always just sort of talked about it as um and again i i kind of i always describe this stuff we always talk about it as kind of augmentation of people um, I don't like this conversation about replacement 
So it's kind of augmentation of activities rather than replacement of jobs. And if you can augment a doctor or a professional or a counsellor or a support worker or you know someone on a telephone line with a bit of data, a bit of analysis, um, the first 20 queries, like if you can augment an expert, you can make them more efficient in their role. And I think that for me sits as a much better use of this kind of technology than this concept of wholesale expert replacement i just think that's nonsense yeah we're not there yet and, no. and actually kind of know what we want want to be yeah well that's the one isn't it is are we should we go there chimeraing they call that don't they which is the um the fact that you need the kind of the human and the machine is as one so augmenting human behavior certainly something we've talked about here but not in the health space um so the work that you're doing now then do you want to sort of tell us a little bit more about that yeah we i mean we've been doing a whole bunch of uh different projects over the last few years we've been developing some triaging technology for mental health charities which has been really fascinating and again to that point about augmentation rather than replacement the the kind of primary goal of that was to analyze the first three or four queries of somebody coming um to charities for to a charity for support and saying okay how at risk does this person look um, potentially within a threshold so that we could potentially push them higher or faster up a queue um, to try and make the kind of response teams more efficient so that was a really interesting use of, of this kind of sentiment analysis data and AI um, and natural language processing uh, we've been doing we actually did a project last year which um, was reported on earlier on uh, this year uh, we were looking at robotics um, to support people with complex disabilities. So we were working with a, a friend of mine from Liverpool who had a condition called epidermabolysis bullosa, um, which basically means the, the uh, collagen was missing from his skin, his skin um, peels and falls off. It's quite a horrific condition. We were looking at how robotics could augment his home. Um, so the role of simple voice interfaces just for controlling his lights, TV, the basic stuff that you can buy for 30 bucks off Amazon now, do you know what I mean? Like it had a massive effect on him, but also could those same technologies be collecting data about him um, to inform his carers of his mood, of his uh, condition, um, to tell the robot that we were looking at um, implementing with him you know that he needed a certain type of care or a certain type of attention or a certain type of alert so um that was again really really fascinating about you know this concept of um augmenting somebody with a limiting condition with ai and data to m do more than humanly possible um that was a that was a brilliant project um, and tone analysis is coming to Alexa so far as I understand it. I think they've recently announced that which is that detecting if people are getting a bit angry or frustrated it actually changes the tone of the voice as well so presumably that if that was like an API that could be something that could be accessed yeah of course whether you would want to is, 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 is a slightly different yeah I, I, I it's a tricky one that isn't it because it's like in some ways I can see all the, all the beautiful benefits of it and um, the necessity for it but at the same time, I'm not sure I want Bezos looking at my mood. Yeah. Uh, so there's a kind of a swing and a roundabout for all of these, um, depending on where they come from. But it can only end with good things and bad things. And I hope the good things outweigh the bad things. Mm. It seems that that is pretty much the case with all the platforms now. I mean, through through some of the things we were discussing earlier, you know, everyone is looking at our data and sense, you know, all the big players are, are looking at our data and our sentiment and what we're doing, what they're doing with it is the questionable thing. You know, they're, they're choosing to monetize it rather than to uh, work out our well-being potentially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you were mentioning earlier, something I found really interesting is this kind of moral dilemma about being able to flag up if someone's not well and how you've got to that place of identifying it and if that's morally okay to to do that yeah it it, it all comes back to that conversation of who you would trust or who you would want to intervene in your life at a moment where perhaps you needed help before you knew you needed it you know who do you want to do that is it your bank is it your friends is it a silicon valley based social media platform 
that are ultimately designed and set up to sell your behavior for advertising purposes, do they have a moral obligation to keep you safe when they spot something that's not kind of normal looking or is that a matter of infringement of your privacy? Um, I don't know if I've got the answer. No. It's a really tricky yeah. one. Um, and the, the kind of the value exchange between what you do and what's done with it, uh, I think is, is emerging now. I don't think anybody really has the answer to it because it made me it made me think of a, another example where they were using I think it was in LA they were using sort of quite large data sets about crimes and time and when it happened and they could pretty much predict with a pretty high accuracy rate where a crime was going to happen and about what time they couldn't necessarily say what the crime was but they knew in that time there would probably be a crime there so they'd send a patrol there yeah. this kind of brought on more issues around um, marginalizing certain members of society yeah. uh, and it kind of opened a whole nother can of complex moralities and things around that as well which again it feels like we are as a society now getting to the point where this we are now hitting these big moments right do we want to allow technology into our closer circle more to protect yeah. us do we think that's safe but i mean the, the the big problem the inherent problem with proper ai not you know small algorithms processing small processes like big ai um which is where we're emerging into now is they need vast quantities of data to train those learning algorithms right and those vast quantities of data for things like crime analysis can only come from historical information so kind of you know 15 year old you know data and they they come inherently laden with racial bias um with historical problems and i think the conundrum now is do we blast forward into this world of ai that can make society more efficient um operate better than it currently does at risk of marginalizing groups who are already pretty marginalized anyway let's be honest and just amplifying that problem or do we go slow down we start generating from scratch uh, within ethical frameworks and within the next 15 years we get to a world where you know, actually we can use facial recognition cameras in certain parts of LA that aren't biased towards a certain um, geodemographic group or something like that. Like, again, governments aren't going to do that. They're not going to slow down. They have targets that they need to hit. But it, it's society, I think, that has to, to kind of um, jump into this conversation. It's a deep one, though, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, it's massive. It, it, it throws up so many different things for me and, like, so many avenues where I would I would consider trying to push this sort of technology. Gambling being a, an addiction, especially in the UK recently, figures came out, and they are huge. You know, it has increased exponentially over the last 10 years, uh, addictions and problems and around finances. So implementing an AI driven through their app systems to alert people would be my first port of call. Now I'm sure they're aware of who on their system actually does have problems and doesn't, and they will say that they will restrict them to a point, which is pr probably fair. But yeah. whether or not they're actually doing it, you know, th there's so many applications. Well, they will self-regulate, don't they, to sort of yeah. prevent the laws coming in to so the gambling industry, mm. the drinks industry. They all self-regulate to to prevent that. Mm. Um, and I want to say, even actually, there was a there was a bill proposed recently in the UK, which is to make any data that you produce is automatically your possession, mm -hmm. whether that will go through. But it's certainly the interesting beginnings of a conversation, because if that happens, I want to say that Facebook immediately becomes um, kind of loses all of its all of its revenue. People like Google will probably survive, but people like Facebook would really struggle as soon as we own our data. Because that whole thing of like, if something's free, you're not the consumer; you're the product. Yeah. Um, do you think though the we still have a job to do? Um, I'm posing a question to to you guys: is no, like, do we have a um, do we have a, an obligation to start educating the general population about data beyond AI and, and algorithms and all that kind of stuff? Is like because my mum still thinks data is the thing she buys on Vodafone. She has no idea that she's leaving a kind of invisible vapor trail of everything she does. I don't think people really understand. They're like, I don't care. What do they know? They just know my name and address. What's, what, does that, yeah. what does that matter? And you don't realize just how much data we produce. Yeah. Oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong. So yeah, what's the yeah. problem with Facebook yeah, yeah. having all my data? I'm not doing anything wrong. It's like, well. And the value exchange is still being perceived. Oh, yeah, but I get to see all my mates' yeah. baby photos. And so it's kind of worthwhile. I think there's a whole bunch of people that still exist. They walk amongst us that if you said, um, do you want to own all your data? 
or do you want the government to look after it for you or the platforms they probably go oh sounds just let them deal with it seems like a big responsibility don't it? let them deal with it they're professional and uh, and i think we're in a bit of an echo chamber in our industry and you know even sitting in this room because we get it and we're part of the conversation but i think if you look at the fat end of this problem the big end of the wedge it is people that don't fully comprehend the societal issues inherent in allowing the government or a platform to own your psychometric but but, and, but the the damage is clear and present now our data was weaponized for elections in both the UK and the US and beyond. It's proven to be massively damaging for mental health, yeah. um, the use of these platforms. And so more and more, I would hope that as the kind of conversation, because the conversation is in the mainstream now, I don't think people connect it directly back to the fact that, that it's data. I think it's more the way that we just use digital tools is, is becoming more of the conversation. Yeah. So I feel, I hope it's changing. I don't use Facebook anymore as a result, and I definitely am far happier as a result of it, noticeably. Yeah. Um, I don't miss anything. The occasional photo of somebody, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, so I feel that it's changing anecdotally, I would hope. It's a bit, it is a bit like whack-a-mole, though, isn't it? Because if, you know, you, you come off one platform and you're going to go somewhere else. Like, the other day I was with a load of... Uh, um, and we're, you know, we're older, wiser people and we've we've contributed to the data problem in the past and now we've kind of, you know, moved away from it. I was in a in a school in South London with 29, 11-year-olds. They're a terrifying group. How many of you have got a phone, everybody? You know, what's your average, you know, screen time? And we looked at their phones and it was like eight hours. Oh, my God. And I'm like, do you use Facebook? No. And they're it's, all kind of TikToking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm professional, and I don't even know what this TikTok thing is. Like, and they tried to explain it to me, and I'm like, oh, that just sounds weird. Like, I, I would never do that. And so, where one, um, you know, one big, sort of giant conglomerate, um, you know, super company that that was created to replace the corporates becomes a corporate, another one pops up to replace it. Do you know what I mean? And so, someone's always gonna. And Chinese owned as well. So, where's your data going? Yeah. TikTok is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you, so at least, at least, you know, your data may be going to Cupertino or Palo Alto, but in this case, it's TikTok. Yeah, it's going, to, like, it's going to China. Do you feel? I feel like with kids, we're going to need to have the data conversation before the birds and the bees. Yeah, and just kind <laughs> of be like, you know, um, well, there's a couple of things we need to talk about today, kids. And the first one is like your your behaviour that's going to stop you getting a job one day, or you know, it's going to come back and haunt you, or you know, your your information is going to be owned by somebody in some tower somewhere in Shanghai. And you just mm. go like, I don't, these are weird times. Yeah. It is a strange time. Um, it, do you think, I mean, would it be fair to say that mental health has deteriorated? From your point of view, have you seen it in the time you've been working with it, around it? Yeah, 100%. Um, absolutely no doubt. And, uh, and that's a, it's a bullshit statement, but you know, we, we've been working in this space for long enough now to see direct correlations between you know the impact i don't think we can blame it on technology because i think technology is an enabler my biggest fear is the content and the volume of content that gets pushed through the platforms and content and filtering of content you know at people is definitely having a direct you know impact on mental health it, it just is you know um the 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 concept it makes me quite angry because I'm a father as well you know and uh, and I can see um that it, following celebrities creates you know a certain longing to be something that some people may never be you know the concept of influencer you know again I think has a detrimental effect on people's mental health because they're aspiring to be things that they may not ever be and, and you might argue that actually when I was growing up I wanted to be a postman or a footballer and, and, or an astronaut and you never got there and I'm like yeah but those were those were dreams now I think technology makes this promise that everybody's going to be famous for five minutes so it creates a kind of big brother culture but also the bullying that goes on, on these platforms the you know the self-harm content that, that teenagers can stumble across by accident like this is this is not good for people's kind of mental health and well-being to be constantly bombarded by negativity and political you know messaging and so on and so forth it, it erodes 
people's confidence and it erodes people's well-being and it creates you know anxious behaviors and um yeah i mean it's uh, as you can probably tell it gets my uh gets my blood boiling a little bit because i am scared i'm really genuinely scared about it yeah how do you yeah how do you raise children in in in, in this in this world with that going on as you, as you say i mean i i have i have i have heard more than a few under tens say when they grow up they want to be youtubers yeah and you just think, what even is that? And I, and I guess, okay, you know, you are we are we kind of older men sounding a little bit like you know, oh, violent, you know, violent video games cause violence. You know, is it the kind of the is it the equivalent of that? Um, but there's 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 kind of clearly a truth in there, and there's something that we need to be aware of. And you know, we're we're sitting here as um, three men, sort of broadly under forty five, and the biggest killer of people like us is ourselves. Yeah as a result um and that's a kind of a terrifying thing to think and i think we can all say i certainly know people who have taken their lives and it's it's fucking horrifying yeah and, you know as a result and, and for kind of pointless reasons and you sort of look back and think we could have caught this yeah. could have done something about it and i think that's where as, as, as you've been saying things like sentiment analysis can start to perhaps help that yep hopefully yeah i mean but but again it's trying to find the way of doing that without massively it, it's i don't know it, it's it's trying to find the it's trying to find a way a method of doing that that's not intrusive um and so i i it's a yeah it's a complicated one i don't have the answers even though i've been looking for the answer for the last 5 years um especially on the suicide issue because i i have the method i know how to do it i know what to look for you know, we're looking for sense of burden in people's, you know, general posts or or things that they're putting online. But how do you dive out in front of somebody and say, you know, do you want to chat? You know, I'm over here. Like, come yeah, on, bud. Yeah. Without suddenly them going like, whoa, hang on a minute. What? Well, I don't have the right to post what I'm posting or say what I'm saying. Um, it's a it's a it's a really it's a really difficult one. When you when you say right of burden as well, could you just elaborate a little bit about yeah. what that really means? Yeah, so the uh, one of the bits of work that we did was um, uh, analysis of suicide notes. So we looked at the suicide notes and um, it's a cheery, cheery Thursday morning <laughs> conversation. Uh, we looked at the suicide notes uh, with families' permissions of um, group of, a control group of people that threatened um, to take their own lives but never actually followed through with it, and a group of people who. Um, uh, threatened it and unfortunately did go through with it male and female um of a varying age group and the real difference we found seven or eight sort of general sentiments throughout the, you know the two groups of notes the real differentiator between those that that said and did versus those that said but didn't or you know were threatening but found help or whatever was this overarching sense of burden i'm a burden on my family society the people around me um they'd be better off without me um, so on and so forth and so if we know those markers um, and we know those those potential triggers um, and we can spot using sentiment analysis you know some of those sentiments in things they're posting online or um, notes that they're putting into Evernote or whatever it is on their phones like then potentially you could pop up and help people um, get you know help before they they hit that kind of uh, that schism um but you know you have to get people to opt in to be monitored that's really difficult is that not is that not already the case though because most chat platforms with the exception of i guess whatsapp which is end-to-end -end encrypted they are the conversation is analyzed for the purposes of advertising so if we and advertising is a nudge mechanic right we're trying to nudge people to change their behavior to go and buy product x over product y presumably there's at least a conversation to be had that if presumably this ad this this analysis has taken place the tools are probably far more sophisticated than even that's even sentiment analysis in terms of what people are talking about that there is an argument to say that an aspect of this is that let's just say one in ten ads that google pushes to you or facebook pushes to you as a result of your behavior can be trying to course correct any perceived mental health issues because that would be a great that's a great story for someone like um a facebook or a, a google to have yeah they um 
they've all I think they've all started to try I think um I mean Facebook have been saying for a while now that they're going to do um sort of suicide prevention tactics within some of their algorithmic work and I applaud them for that I don't fully understand their motive is it the is are they fed up with PR external pressure yeah um uh Google you know already um do a huge amount actually and and hats off to them if I start searching around for things that look like um hunting for a method they will signpost me to the Samaritans they will do certain types of work but there's a lot of work that needs to be done there is a lot of work that needs to be done we um were looking recently with uh somebody from um the East Sussex um Department of Health, uh, down in East Sussex, they were trying to fix the, or look for the beachy head problem. So beachy head is a big yeah. flash spot for you know, suicide. It's globally, people travel all over the world to get to beachy head. And you go onto Google and you search for beachy head and what comes back in the images are all these kind of, you know, beautiful looking empty scenes of cliffs. Like there were no people in any of the pictures. And I'm like, we can do stuff to fix that straight away. So let's put, let's make sure the pictures that get surfaced in some of these flash spots are just full of tourists. Um, those little things that we could do with their algorithms on Google and things like that. So I think Google has a really big part to play in this. They're trying, they're doing some stuff that's really important, but I think there's a lot more they can do. They just need people to help them. Okay, it's not, None of these platforms, it's not their job, is it? It, it should be their job, but it's not what they exist for. It's Yeah, it comes into the fact that they need to be more socially responsible now, which is um, certainly something that, that they're all under pressure. A, a normal caveat, both Facebook and Google are clients of ours. <laughs> but, you know, but none of these platforms were set up by the audiences that are affected by these issues. You know, they're all a sort of holy trinity, white middle class men setting up these things. They weren't designed... They're not people that are affected by the issues that we're discussing. And so they haven't baked into their business model right from the very conception that they were going to need to be dealing with these kind of problems. They're retrofitting things in now to try and, you know, because they're just not, they're not, they're not the audience of the problems. And so um, I think it's, it's a cultural issue within these, these businesses as well. But um, we've got a journey and I think in the next couple of years, we'll see some really amazing work, I think, from the people that, quite often get bashed for not doing enough i think they are going to start doing some really good stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah you would certainly hope so i mean they're dem the people who work for them now they are the demographic of the people who are um suffering from this statistically so you would presume that there was the normal problem of it being that kind of holy trinity of people working on them are causing biases in things like yeah. facial recognition in this case you actually make a benefit of the fact that these are the main target audience yeah. for this and i think just back to the you know back back to my kind of uh, hot topic of of um ai and machine learning these companies that we're talking about right now are the only companies potentially on the planet in the driving seat of general ai you know the next serious wave of of technology DeepMind is owned by google you know DeepMind arguably are sitting on top of the biggest opportunity to do better things with data and, and AI than, than, than most businesses. Um, so I would hope they are looking at those technologies that they're producing and saying, what can we do to really amplify the very best parts of humanity rather than erode them? And let's look at the tech for good angle of their business models um, because they are, we are fingers crossed waiting for them all to do something brilliant because they're really the only people that can do something quite profound and brilliant. Um, and you can put idiots like me in charge of small AI businesses, but we don't have the wealth and the resources of these giant companies to really make a societal you know, impact at the scale that it needs to be made. It has to come from a, one of these big tech giants, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I do wonder. I mean, there's, there's very little, there's very little that the government can do, although certainly the EU has held those companies to account on a lot of things. And I know you've previously talked about the idea of a, almost a Hippocratic oath for yeah. uh, data. Yeah. and responsible use of data yeah. and you wonder if you start to implement some of those things at least at least within the eu that would force them to the continent because things like gdpr has forced these companies to change globally because they yeah, have to sure. do things in in europe and so if there's kind of equivalent to start getting bills moving yeah we're not going to be part of the eu for much longer so i'm sure there are people in advertising companies going like let's just get out that's gdpr over good like, let's not do this anymore. I don't know. I'm being cynical. Yeah, but no, there are, there are, um, I think government has a role to play. And I think regulation has a role to play. But I also think, you know, we have to 
there's a new wave of tech entrepreneurs that are all coming through universities and stuff right now and they should be studying philosophy and ethics and not just you know how to write a, a deep learning algorithm do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there's a bit of a, a moral obligation to catch these people before they become the next Mark Zuckerberg and say, think about the question why before you go away and, and launch the next version of Facebook. And that, that's, of course, that didn't exist 15, 20 years ago because we didn't know what the problem was going to be. But now we know what the problem is. Maybe we can prevent it from happening again. Um, so force the because doctors doctors have to do ethics. It's part of it. Yeah. It's, it's part it's part of what they do yeah. because of the power they have. Geneticists are the same. They all take an oath, you know, globally. Um, they all meet, you know, big sort of genome mappers and so on and so forth. They all meet every year and they kind of decide where their frameworks are and what their boundaries are and what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. And we won't experiment on human beings and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, they've, they've all taken this oath. And I think the industry, the tech industry is disparate. Like it's all very much been about themselves for a long time. You know, every human being for themselves and will make as much money as possible. And it has been a you know a, a multi-billion-dollar juggernaut without that kind of roundtable ethics piece. Um, let's see whether they actually do all sit down and and have this conversation about okay, these are the big issues that society face. Do we have an opportunity to to get rid of them? And strangely, they haven't really, you know, breaking it down. They haven't really been very human in their approach of growth, right? And I think it's now become. Uh, the cultural norm to expand rapidly if you look at you know various companies around the world at the moment we work you know uber that they were very well known for being aggressively expand expanding uber's kind of ipo is well we'll get rid of our drivers that will be how we make money you know there's no human being or human sentiment at the center of these things at the moment uh and it's quite interesting you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think we should be studying ethics as much as coding in the same way because the effects are can be astronomical. And a bit these businesses, again, you know, they, they're not thinking about the people in the equation because that's not why they set their business up. I imagine, the, you know, when they first started Uber, the concept that they were going to have a more countries worth of drivers was never even something that they considered oh no what are we gonna do with all these people like we were supposed to be you know robotic cars driving people all over the world we're gonna be a tech platform we're gonna be a data platform um the the burden of people probably yeah. never even crossed their <laughs> mind and then they get to the point where they're effectively the next you know microsoft in terms of the volume of mouths that they got to feed and they're going oh no we never thought about this and also people are so complex right they bring complex problems like the problems that come with the actual with some drivers and things are way more complex than you would get with an automated car in some regards yeah. there were um there were some really interesting countries that i've been visiting recently when you go um you know like self-driving cars um the like the ubers of the world the, the problem is the people um and you go, well, we're never going to get the whole self-driving army of cars on the road because of all the problems that can go wrong. I was talking at a conference in the Middle East not that long ago, and I said this, you know, that we won't see self-driving cars sort of en masse on the road for a while. And somebody came over to me afterwards and was, was like, well, we're about to launch our self-driving car taxi business because like, the regulation is not something that we have to be too concerned about. They're obviously concerned, but they're kind of, you know, um, go fast and break things still exists as a kind of mantra in some countries around the world, which I just find like, oh, okay, all right, it's going to be interesting. Um, we're never going to hear the bad news because their great iron curtain will prevent it. But yeah, there are biz- there are places around the world where the 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 rapid technological growth at the expense of human beings is just going to be exponential. And actually, countries like England and America and you know Westernized countries are actually probably thinking about the issues in a lot more depth than we're giving credit for um to a certain extent where there are countries that are just gonna just gonna go at it hard yeah and um you know are less concerned about the human impact yeah well i suppose the one that springs to mind in focus there is china and how it's technically you know it's technological industrial revolution is you know it's massive you see these kind of videos which come out of china of people with about 50 mobile phones all doing social things yeah, at the same time and there's just one poor person just ugh, feeling awful. I thought those were memes until somebody put it out to me that that's actually how it works. Yeah, that's real. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Chinese render banks, it's crazy. That's amazing. But again, I love, I, I love seeing those pictures going like, there's still a human in the loop. 
Yeah. It's still a person. <laughs> and I love this idea that no matter how hard they try, damn it, we still need an octo person pressing all the buttons. Yeah. <laughs> it's just good. But just one person. Like, yeah. You do the job of five people, please. Like, yeah. That's the way we're going to do it. Amazing. If the end user is a human, you need a human in the process because you need someone to translate the technology back to the human at the end of it. Yeah. So if, if it is so it's why it's human-centric design, I think, will stick around for a bit and hopefully AI will be used to augment human beings, not replace. I think when you're automating things, like, you know, we one of our clients has created a, an automated mining truck, fine, human beings don't need to be in that world. But when your end user is a human being, you do need you do need the human being to kind of translate yeah. the efficiencies back to a to a human. And Uber ultimately, the people getting in it, the thing you're, they're transporting around are human beings. Yeah. Even if the driver's going to be absent. Yeah, I mean, one of the actually one of the themes that I I, I wrote about in my book a, a long while ago now, um, uh, which did resonate with people. It was probably the theme that resonated the most out of many. It was this whole like I had a bit of a, a rage about the term user and client and customer like these dehumanizing terms that we've all thrown around and like you know you, you look on my cv i was in what you know data-driven design but effectively ux for you know a good like in the middle of for about good 10 years of my career and you go like we we were liberally referring to people as users and putting their pen portrait up on the wall and designing things for these kind of dehumanized figures um and every industry in the world is like you know our members, our users, our, our clients, our customers, um, whatever it is. And all of those terms instantly turn people into numbers, you know, en masse. Um, and so there is no humanity in the design of any of these services because for all intent and purpose, everyone is just a number. Um, and so I think the, the, you know, nomenclature and language plays a really interesting role in making a better future, a more human-centered future um, for the world by just remembering that the person that you're deploying this button for ultimately goes home at the end of the day and eats dinner with their families or, you know, has um, valuable emotions. Um, they're, they're human beings. Because It's because we're too removed. It's, 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 that's, that's the thing. I've, I've been on a similar journey to you where I've put work out into the world and what you get back is analytics. You get back a graph which just has faceless numbers and something that was very profound for me is the first time that I went into an experience agency and you're putting work into the real world and you're standing by what you've produced in the real world with real people and you see the way they behave and interact or don't interact, like or dislike, it really brings it home that, oh, these are, these are human beings, these are people who think and feel and yeah. they're not a number on a graph that comes back and you go, oh, we got thousand faceless people who watched or clicked or yeah and it, it bears remembering i think but it, it, we, we don't you know we work at such a scale you can't you can't like put a facebook campaign out and just go around everyone's house and yeah for sure go why don't you watch our thing i mean even the even the the um sort of the new company that i'm involved with now uh, for healthcare is a really interesting one because we've got kpis there's you know there's volume of humans that we need to find in order for the business to be viable and the minute like we really have to stop ourselves in our tracks a little bit and go like that number that we're punching for instantly points us in a direction where we're looking at these people that we need to have conversations with as a minus one minus one minus one right we're getting towards our target um and i think a lot of businesses set themselves aggressive targets like uber and we work and stuff like that where they they were literally sort of going for their big number this is how many people we need to the detriment of the people that they were going for they don't care if it's the right people they just need people um like a convenient truth there is that you know course we weren't thinking about the impact on people we were just after the number we were just hitting our you know going for our unicorn status by getting to a million people a billion people whatever it is um and we've only been able to do that in the last 10 years because of data and analytics and you know multi-level marketing spilled out into the digital world and so on and so forth um but the, the impact of that has definitely come at the kind of the human condition i think is probably the thing that's not considered enough 
do you take an optimistic appraisal of the future? Definitely. We've got to really, haven't we? I mean, uh, of, of course I talk about a lot of fairly um, heady themes and I, I do a lot of work in some really um, dark recesses of society, but it, it is brilliant, the world that we're in at the moment. Um, and there are more, or as many good things as bad things, and we should celebrate those as well. Um, but, you know, there are problems that need to be fixed along the way. But I am optimistic. I love the fact that we've just put uh, a little Amazon Echo Show thing in my parents, my very elderly parents' um, front room. They don't even have mobile phones, but now they can just say, you know, Alexa, call Pete, and it rings mine, and we have effectively Skype-style calls through a little tiny box in the corner, like... That's brilliant. And um, it, is, it is frictionless. It is completely frictionless. And they see the grandkids more because of that. And they, you know, have conversations and they feel a little bit closer. There's 150 miles between us and them, but they feel a little bit closer. And I think that's, a, you know, these are things that we should celebrate, that the world is a bit smaller. It just so happens that, that same little box is spying on them and probably going to start, you know, direct <laughs> mailing them, uh, you know, yeah, advertising yeah. things that they don't need anymore. So there's a, there's, a, there's a zig and a zag for all of these things. But I think we should definitely take stock of all the good stuff that's happened yeah i mean for me it's like with technology it's always two steps forwards one step back yeah. we have frictionless experiences where you can as you say you can you can shop and you can contact my, my daughter gets the video call with the grandparents regularly of yeah. course we didn't do that when we were kids nothing even close barely yeah. we pick up the phone maybe yeah, but with that is data concerns and mental health concerns yeah. and as long as we're aware of them and we can hopefully seek to course correct as this stuff develops being on the kind of the outside, sort of lobbying to, to and making people aware, as you say. Do you think we can make people aware about their data usage? Can we do it? I mean, I think we've we've got a natural generation coming through that are already becoming aware of it, and are probably going to. And again, these are generational things. Don't forget that you know, um, a lot of institutional biases are sort of being bred out of society as sort of one end falls off and falls over and you know a new wave comes through my my kids I learn as much from my 10 year old and my six-year-old about technology and, and and consumption and usage than I do you know from professionals that I surround myself around so I think I think there is going to be a natural group of people that start to emerge um, who are way more aware than perhaps those of us that were sort of hit by the hand grenade you know when we threw it 10 years ago um, so I do, I do think things are going to uh, plateau out a little bit, but I think also their education needs to be completely reconsidered um, for equipping them to deal with this world where actually we're going to be generating even more data um, and everything that we do is going to be under more scrutiny. Um, but I think they'll, they'll, they'll self-regulate to a certain extent. I'm, I'm looking forward to the first, you know, millennial CEO of a major yeah. bank or corporation. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, hello, world, that's going to be amazing. I don't think um, it's that far off either. No, well, if you think about the age groups, it can't be that far off. Or, you know, the first chief philosophy officer for a large global bank. Um, like, that's going to happen, and that's going to be amazing. And suddenly, maybe those old organisations that we sort of turned our back on, once our kids start running them, they're actually going to be the ones that save us from the ones that we created to replace them. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that's what. Maybe that's the next cab off the rank, is that you've got... We've, we've now... The rise of the chief innovation officer is, is 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 the response to that. The rise of the chief philosophy officer, the, the C, CPO. <laughs> imagine <laughs> that. Imagine five years ago, us even sitting in this room having this conversation. Uh, it's a it's a good old world. I would totally go for that job. I love the sound of that. What does a chief philosophy officer do? Probably oh, chief, ethics, or, uh, chief, yeah, chief, chief ethics. ethics officer. But you'd have to come from philosophy background, wouldn't you? I'm seeing a beanbag, a lot of thought, discussion, yeah. open talks. I think it'd be quite nice. Yeah. Open meditation sessions every morning yeah. with the large workforce. Well, they all have their spiritual advisors if Silicon Valley is to be believed. I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs certainly did. Yeah, without doubt, all right. Didn't they? They kind of hang around with them. Yeah. And Silicon Valley is, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a documentary. I love that show. I do love that show. Um, so we were going to ask you about... Um, your book recommendations like we do all of our guests is there any philosophy in there is it well i think i think most books that are emerging at the moment are quite philosophical um i just spent 
I feel really privileged. I just spent a weekend in in Venice on a management retreat um, conference that I spoke at uh, with a lady called Lucy Green, who was uh, one of the innovation officers for uh, JWT in America. She's got her own company now called Light Years in LA. Uh, she wrote a book called Silicon States. Silicon States is a book that I would recommend everybody go and read. It's an amazing book, and it's really a sort of a breakdown and a look at the companies that emerged to replace the corporates and how they've effectively become the corporates they were designed to replace um and the bro culture and all the stuff that's gone you know potentially wrong in somebody's businesses um it's an amazing book um she's an amazing lady as well and it was such a privilege to hang out with her for a bit um the other book that i read which is uh, pure fiction but it's a really wonderful book is if you haven't read it i would definitely recommend reading um dave edgar's the circle yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's a brilliant. I think they turned it into a slightly flaky. Yeah, the Emma Watson TV. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I Tom don't Hanks think... was he? Oh I yeah, yes, he of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. Tom Hanks was the best bit in it. Like, was he? Yeah, he was all right. I yeah. think the book was great. I read the book, yeah, the and it was good. you know it's quite a Black Mirror um, sort of ideological view of of these social media groups. But when I read it, I was like, there's quite a lot of truth in there. Like Black Mirror, you know, there's always that nugget of truth in there. Well, and also, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a couple of years old, and actually, even in that time, some of those things, like the cameras, the little cameras they have in that book, which is the sort of the central technology, the spying technology that all the politicians start using, yeah. is more and more people, people like Google and Facebook are doing these little, always on little kind of cameras where you can just constantly be broadcasting what you're doing. Yeah. Or, uh, or the um, the cameras on the top of the monitors that monitor the uh, mood of the employees to make sure that everybody's happy. Yeah. So, oh, I read that somewhere that somebody's doing that right now. It's like, yeah, I'm not sure people are going to like that. Um, when the little green light on your camera flicks on. Uh, the other book that I really um, have been enjoying, it's quite weighty and it's it's a bit deep, so it might take a few goes, but um, Shashand Zuboff, I think that's the right name, way to pronounce uh, the name, uh, excuse me if it's wrong, uh, did this amazing book called Surveillance Capitalism. And Surveillance Capitalism, I thought, was really, um, really erudite, really interesting, a very well-researched look at the the fact that our data is, effect, you know, is the currency that's driving the sort of next wave of capitalism, um, which I thought was a really good book. Um, and it, it felt like a companion piece to Conscious Capitalism, which was another book that um, it does feel like the buddy to that book, which was all about, you know, do big things, but be conscious. So, yeah, Surveillance Capitalism, I would definitely recommend people have a little uh, little dig into. Great. Thank you. That's a great selection. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you for coming you to the Genuine X uh, podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, Pete, for coming on the Genuine X podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts, please do get in touch. Genuine X podcast at jackmorton.co.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes. Till next time, thank you very much.